we come to God's word, let's let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of meeting together, uh, shoulder to shoulder, face to face. We do pray for our Christian sisters and brothers in Northland, Auckland and Waikato who under level 3 can't meet and we do play a special blessing on them whether they're online or Zooming or having family devotions, however they worship you today, be with them in a special way. And also with us as we open up your word, may Jesus be more real to us. In Jesus' name, Amen. So what was Indiana Jones looking for? in the 1981 movie Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, we are introduced to a professor of archaeology and adventurer who was drawn into a life-or-death quest for an ancient religious artefact, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, it's set in the 1930s, and if you want some bad guys in the 1930s, then look no further than Nazis. So, that's the tension the Nazis are after the Ark of the Covenant and so is Indiana Jones. Who can get it first? But what's all the fuss about? I mean, why expend all that effort, all that money and even lives lost for an ancient relic? Well, the movie gives three reasons why the Ark of the Covenant is so important. Uh, so I'll show you that trailer. See if you can pick up the three reasons why Hollywood anyway thinks that the Ark of the Covenant is important. Nearly 3,000 years, man has been searching for the last ark. No one knows its secrets. It's like nothing you've ever gone after before. The Bible speaks of the ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. An army which carries the ark before it is invincible. Indiana Jones. Always knew someday you'd come walking back through my door. Do you realize what the art is? It's a transmitter. It's a radio for speaking to God. It is there, Taurus. Then it is something that man was not meant to disturb. Death has always surrounded it. So did you pick up the three reasons why Hollywood thinks the Ark of the Covenant is important? First of all, his Ark rival, his nemesis, claims that the Ark is a transmitter, a radio to speaking with God. His boss, the dean of the university, tells Indiana that any army who carries the Ark before it is invincible. And then his good friend and fellow adventurer tells them that it's a talus. It's something that man was not meant to disturb. Three different views, a radio to God, an invincible weapon, or a mystery best left alone. If you want to see which answer Hollywood gives, then you can watch the movie because it's uh, streaming on Netflix and various other streaming services. But spoiler alert, all of those are wrong. (laughs) All of them are wrong. Fortunately, despite the speculation that was in this movie, and I tell you, if you Google it now, you will see a lot of speculation about the Ark of the Covenant even now. Despite that, the Bible gives a a very clear answer and even shows us why the Ark of the Covenant is relevant for Christians today. So this morning we'll do three things. First of all, we'll look at the Ark briefly, what it looked like, its description, and then we're going to look at the contents. And we'll see that there are three very important contents 
of the Ark of the Covenant, what's sitting in the box. And then we're going to look at the cover because the cover, the lid of the box, has incredible significance. So we'll describe the box, we'll have a look at the contents of the box, and then we'll look at its lid, its cover. So the Ark of the Covenant description, well, our passage in Exodus 25 that was read describes the Ark of the Covenant. It was a box about 130 centimetres by 80 centimetres. The original dimensions are a little bit uh, unsure because they used cubits in the Bible, and a cubit is a distance from the elbow elbow to the tip of the the longest finger. So it does vary a little bit, but that's very close to the dimensions that you would expect. It was made of wood and was overlaid with gold both inside and outside. Now on the legs, on the side were placed four rings in which long poles were placed. And those poles were never to be taken away and they were there to be carried because the Ark of the Covenant was to be the centrepiece of the tabernacle, the tent temple that was going to accompany the Israelites as they travelled from the mountain to the promised land. So it had to be portable. It wasn't until many centuries later that it was in 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 a stone temple. And so it had those poles that were there. And so that's basically the description of the box itself. On top was a special cover made of pure gold and two cherubim were moulded onto the top and with outstretched wings they faced each other. Now people often confuse a cherubim with cherubs. Cherubs are those cute chubby little valentine figures. We're not talking about them. We're talking top league angel, fearful, fall on your ground, in face and awe, mighty being. And yet on the Ark of the Covenant, even they bow down before the presence of God. And so that's the the Ark of the Covenant, what it looks like. Uh, Here we have it in the movie, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I've had a wee look on the various graphics that you can see on Google, and they all seem pretty much alike. And so that's probably as much as anything else we can guess what it was like. Now, what about the contents? What's inside this golden box? Well, there are three things. The first thing that we'll see are the stone tablets, and we see this in Exodus 25, verse 21. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. So the tablets. Now, what are these tablets? They're not those sort of tablets. They're not medicine. Uh, They're not those sort of tablets. (laughs) They're those tablets. You knew that, didn't you? Those tablets, the stone tablets. So God had given Moses the Ten Commandments and he'd come down the mountain and told the people what the Ten Commandments were and the people signed off on them, the covenant. We looked at that last week. But God hadn't yet given Moses the stone tablets that had the Ten Commandments written on them. They were to come. But we see in Exodus that once God's given Moses the instructions for building the ark, he says, when I give you the stone tablets, that's where you're to keep them. Keep them in the box, the golden box. And these tablets, stone tablets, represent God's word, a revelation of who he is, his character, and also instructions to live by. And these tablets stored in the ark, in the Holy of Holies, in the central place of worship, for God's people, remind us of the priority of God's word, the Bible. It's a, it, it is our top priority when it comes to our walk with God. They remind us that as we draw into God's presence, we submit to his word. Even the bits we don't understand and the bits we don't like, 
I was talking to someone this morning who said that they were going through the read a psalm, pray a psalm a day, and they said, I almost rang you during the week because I was so annoyed with the psalm. There's a couple that annoy me no end <laughs> when you're reading those psalms. They're not, but they're still God's word. And even if they, even if sometimes you read them and you just get nothing, which happens, or you, or you read them and you think, gee, that's, I'm a bit cross about that. Of course, most of the time you read it and we're very blessed. But either way, we submit to God's word. We say, well, I don't understand this, Lord. I'm a bit cross about it, but I leave it to, leave it to you. You'll make it clear when I need to know. But we submit to God's word. So that's the first thing that was in the Ark of the Covenant, the tablets of the Ten Commandments. So what's the second thing that's in the Ark of the Covenant? Well, it's Aaron's staff. Now, there's a bit of a backstory about this that we just need to go over. Really interesting story, one of those fascinating stories you'll get in the book of Numbers. So we have to fast forward a year or two. The Israelites have escaped from uh, Egypt. Uh, It's taken about six weeks to get to Mount Sinai. They stay there about a year, and then they move off to the Promised Land, which takes about, in total, 40 years. Now, when they're travelling, they struggle at times. They grumble. The Israelites struggle. And one of the things they grumble about is uh, Moses and Aaron. See, Moses and Aaron are brothers. Moses has gone up the mountain and comes back and tells the people about God's stuff. But some of the people are thinking, well, maybe Moses is making it up. Moses came down and said, Aaron and only Aaron is to be a high priest and my nephews. Nobody else. And some of the people are thinking, well, maybe that's just one brother looking after another brother. Actually, we want to be priests. Who gave Moses the right to say that only Aaron and his nephews can be priests? So they start grumbling, complaining, rebelling, and God won't have a bar of it. So this is the very unusual way that God gets to sort this issue out. We see this in Numbers 17 from verse 3. On the staff of Levi, write Aaron's name. This is the staff that's going to be ended up in the Ark of the Covenant. For there must be one staff for the head of each of the twelve or each of the ancestral tribes. So there are twelve tribes. Each of them is to get a staff, twelve staffs. Each of them would have the name of the tribe on them. So we then pick it up in verse 4. Place them, this is the staffs, in the tent of meeting in front of the ark of the covenant law where I meet with you. The staff belonging to the man I choose will sprout. There we go. So that's what they do. That night they get... They collect the 12 staffs from the 12 tribes. They put them in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And then what happens is not only does Aaron's staff bud, but flowers appear overnight and there are ripe almonds that you could pick and eat. The other 11 staffs are exactly as they left it. And that was God's way to tell the people of Israel I did tell Moses that only Aaron and Aaron's sons could be priests. Stop your grumbling. So that's the back story about Aaron's, Aaron's staff. And then, of course, in verse 10 of number 17, we have these instructions from God. God says, Put back Aaron's staff in front of the Ark of the Covenant law to be kept as a sign to the rebellious. This will put an end to their grumblings against me so they will not die. So it was put in front of the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies, but Jewish tradition says at some stage during its history it was actually put inside the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe it was because they were having to pack it up all the time and travel through the wilderness, but either way. And so what does the Aaron's staff remind us about? If the 
the tablets remind us of God's word, then Aaron's staff reminds us about worship and worship from the heart and worship that pleases God first before it pleases us. So that's the importance of Aaron's staff in the Ark of the Covenant. One more thing that's found inside this golden box and that is uh, manna. Manna. Now, what's the story with manna? Well, if you were here a month or two ago, we looked at that, but uh, for those that weren't or might not know the story, they were in the wilderness, all the Israelites, no food. What were they to do? Well, they grumbled, and God said, you wait until the morning. They got up in the morning early, and where the Jew was was instead this manna, this food from heaven. What was it? Exodus 16.31 says it was like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made from honey. And so it served the purpose of of flour. They would use it to bake bread and other foods that they could eat. Now, there's something very unusual about this manna, and of course they had it for 40 years while they were in the wilderness, and the unusual thing is that none of it would keep overnight. So you would collect enough for the day, but at first the Israelites were thinking, well, what if it's not here tomorrow morning? Maybe I'll just collect a big extra. And at the end of the day, if there was any manna left over, when they woke up in the morning... It had gone mouldy and was full of maggots. God told them, well, I told you only to collect one for a day. And what's that all about? Well, it's to remind us that God only gives us enough grace for a day at a time. Really interesting, isn't it? God only gives us enough grace for a day at a time. We don't need to have grace for tomorrow and next week. We'll get it. And so it's all about faith. It's all about trusting. We like to have insurance. We like to, nothing wrong with insurance. We like to plan ahead. Nothing wrong with planning ahead. But at the end of the day, God wants us to trust him day by day. And that's the significance of the manna. And so, after manna was first discovered, we read this in Exodus 16. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer, that's a measure, it might be a cup, maybe two cups, of manna in it, then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so they might be preserved. So that's where we know that that cup was placed. So let's summarise very briefly the contents. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4 and 5, there is a convenient summary as the writer of Hebrews discusses all this at great length. Verse 4 of Hebrews 9 This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and stone tablets of the covenant. Manna is God saying, trust me. The staff is God saying to you and I, worship me. And the tablets, the stone tablets are saying, obey me. What's the theme of Exodus? You'll know it now off by heart if you've been sitting here. We are rescued to Worship, we're rescued to worship. The rescue's over, but learning to worship, well, takes 40 years and longer. And here we have three key elements of what true worship is to the living God. The manna says, trust me. The staff says, worship me. And the tablets say, obey me. These are key elements that we bring to our worship of the living God, not just on a Sunday, but 24-7. Now verse 5 of Hebrews 9 is a useful description of the cover, the lid. So let's look about the importance of the cover. Hebrews 9.5 Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover. 
Now in the movie Raiders of the Last Ark, the focus was on the contents. It was all what was happened when you opened the box and looked inside. But that's completely wrong. I mean, the contents are important, but actually the significance of the Ark of the Covenant is its cover, and more important, between the wings of the outstretched cherubim. And this importance is reflected in the two names that you'll find in the Bible. The first name is atonement cover, where we get that from Hebrews 9.5. Now, why is the lid of the ark called the atonement cover? Well, it's named after the day of atonement. The day, one day a year, when the high priest would go into the centre of the tabernacle, later on it was a stone temple, but into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, one time a year. And he went in there with the blood of a slain animal and he would sprinkle that onto the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, that atonement blood. Now why was that? Well, during the year, the temple or the the tabernacle, people would come and make daily sacrifices and some of those would be for their own sins or the sins of their family and that. But once a year, the high priest would sacrifice an animal to cover the sins of the whole nation. Uh, Modern Jews will call that Yom Kippur. They don't have the temple, but it's a celebration that they make. And so that's where we get the atonement cover because it's where the blood was sprinkled that atoned, got the forgiveness of sins for all of Israel. And mercy seat is another name that you'll find in the Bible for this. A little bit confusing because there's no seat on top of the cover for anyone to sit on but it's a place of God's favour and it reflects the result of the atonement because the blood is sprinkled, mercy is God's mercy is poured out on all the people, undeserved favour. So that's the cover. We've looked at the contents and the cover and we haven't quite got to the real significance of the ark. We're almost there. What's the real significance of all of us? They all come together in one key fact, one key principle And if we go back to Exodus 25, our our core reading for this morning, we'll see this in, in 22, in chapter 25, verse 22. There, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. And this is where it all comes together. Because between the wings of the cherubim is the presence of God. This is what the Ark of the Covenant is all about. It's all about the presence of God. See, this is the dilemma. Adam and Eve were in the garden. And apart from it being paradise, in the cool of the evening, they would walk with God. They were in his presence. When they rebelled, when they took the fruit, there were some terrible consequences. Sin and death entered mankind. But that wasn't the worst consequence the worst consequence was that they were Adam and Eve were ejected from the garden. They were ejected from the presence of God. That's the worst thing about the fall was the cutoff from God and his people. And here God is trying to redeem it. How can I dwell as a holy God? How can I dwell amongst an unholy people? And this is his answer. This is all about bringing back the presence of God that was lost at the Garden of Eden and bringing it back to the midst of the people of God. Later on in Numbers, you'll see that that when they travelled through the wilderness, their camp was always um, centred. All the tribes camped around the tabernacle 
with the presence of God at its centre. When they upped camp, they would move in, in lots of three tribes, three tribes, the Levites carrying the, the tabernacle, and then another three tribes and another three tribes. All the time, the presence of God was at the centre of the people of God. And this is the key. This is the key to understanding the tabernacle. It's all about the presence of God. And the amazing thing was that because of God's presence, only Moses could freely come into the presence of the ark. And we see this in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 2. So Moses, when the, when the ark was, was built, Moses could go to the ark when he liked and he would hear the voice of God and he'd get the laws and, and all this sort of stuff. But look, listen what he says to, to his brother Aaron. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark or else he will die for I will appear in the cloud above the atonement cover. It's all about God's appearing in his presence. In fact, when the high priest went in behind the Holy of Holies, behind the curtain, to on the Day of Atonement, they used to tie a rope round his leg. Why did they do that? In case the high priest died, <laughs> either through a medical event or maybe he did something to annoy God no end. And so what do you do if you've got a dead body in the Holy of Holies and you can't go in? Very practical, the Jewish folk, aren't they? So they had a rope. So they pulled them out. Never had to use it, not that we know of. I'm very pleased that I don't have a rope tied around my leg. <laughs> I mean, that's how seriously they took about it. So, so when you think of the Ark of the Covenant and you, and you watch something like Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark and all that Hollywood stuff, it's a great story. But at the end of the day, it's a story, whereas what we're hearing here from the Word of God is the truth and it's all about the presence of of God. Now what does that mean for us today? I mean, where's the presence of God today? Is it still, is God's presence still above the ark? Is the ark tucked away in some cave or, or secret place where, where a secret society has been charged to guard it with their life? That makes a good story, isn't it? Or, as the Hebrews believe, it was carried off when the Babylonians captured Israel and just disappeared, just got lost, melted down or whatever. I mean, what if the ark exists? Is God's presence still there above the cherubim and in the wings' presence? Well, the thing is, even if it still exists, and even if it's found, its status has changed. It's changed forever. God no longer dwells between the wings of those golden angels, cherubim. So how did this happen? Well, 2,000 years ago, while on an old rugged cross... The Son of God cried his last words. It is finished. And many of us know what happened. As these words, it is finished, was echoing around the hills of Golgotha before the last syllable died away. There in the temple, something very dramatic happened. The curtain from top to bottom, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn top to bottom as God's presence left the temple. God's presence from the time that Jesus uttered, it is finished, no longer dwelt between the wings of a cherubim. And because of Christ's death, because of the blood that was shed for you and I, every trusting soul has access to the very presence of God. If you love Jesus, you are more privileged than Aaron 
Aaron could only go in once a year with a rope around his ankle. I don't think any of us have our morning devotions with a rope around our ankle. And even though I jest, it does, I think, bring home the point of the privilege that we have. God's presence is not locked into the Ark of the Covenant. We do not have to go through a series of animal sacrifices and priests because of what Jesus did and the, the ripped veil, the curtain that was ripped, and the blood of Jesus. We now have open access to our Heavenly Father, the presence of God. And so the Ark of the Covenant is in some respects made redundant. However, it can still teach us so much. First of all, it teaches us that the Word of God is central. How do you experience the presence of God? I'll give you three ways to experience the, the presence of God. First of all, through the Word of God. God has chosen to reveal himself through the Bible. As the Spirit makes these words come alive to us, we experience the Word of God. So the Ark of the Covenant reminds us about the Word of God and the experience of him. How else do we experience the presence of God? Well, think of Aaron's staff. It's all about worship. If you want to experience God, then worship with all your heart, with all your soul. Be quick to repent. Be quick to lift up your voice in songs of praise, your hands in prayer. So if you want to experience God, you experience God through his word and through worship. Then finally, how do you experience God? Well, the ark will tell you, it tells us that we experience God by faith. Think of the, the manner, trusting God day by day. If you want to experience the presence of God, step out in faith, trust him, and God's presence will be more real to you. And all this is to do with, like I said, the presence of God, the veil that was ripped so that we could have open access to a heavenly Father. So in some respects the Ark of the Covenant is redundant, but on the other hand it tells us all things we need to know about worshipping God. Why? Because we are rescued to worship and that is our greatest joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you that we are rescued to worship. Thank you that it's all about your presence and and that when Adam and Eve were ejected from the garden from your presence, that was a great sadness to all humanity. But now through, in a true and better way, through Jesus, we have open access to your presence. May we not take it for granted. Teach us to experience more of you through your word, through worship, and through trusting and faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 